you will mark your books to 179, one step at a time, after our lesson. <coughs> Tonight we'll be looking at a few lessons we can learn from the people of Israel in regards to their relationship uh, with God. Uh, as with Daniel, though, I said it when I began Daniel, I wasn't going to go through it chapter by chapter. When I do, I went through it chapter by chapter. Uh, but hopefully I'm going to do that with uh, Hosea. As we know, as the men decided last, uh, in our last meeting, we're going to have, uh, when we do our summer series, it's going to be uh, dealing with the minor prophets. And so, uh, not that I'm going to repeat this during the summer series, but anyway, uh, a lot of what we've been talking about the last several weeks have been dealing with uh, some of these uh, very, very individuals. But in Hosea chapter, chapter 1, and really the first few chapters, you find Israel's relationship with God. And you find that interesting verse there with Hosea, with, uh, Hosea him being told to go and take a wife of harlotry. And at first glance, when you read that, you'll think probably like I would if I was reading it the first time without considering the context and things that's going on. You think, why would God tell him to go take a wife of harlotry? You think that's insane. Who would do that? But as we look at Hosea, what we find is a comparison of the relationship that Israel has with God. And Israel in Hosea is the harlot. They are the one uh, who has become unfaithful to God. And that's the image we find being painted throughout Hosea. And really we also find some of the reasons why uh, they, have, they, are, they are in the position they are in. If you look at Hosea chapters 1 through 4, we're going to be looking at several chapters, again, not all of them, and not verse by verse, obviously, but we want, to, we want to begin tonight by looking at Israel's relationship with God as we find it first in chapters 1 through 4. And so this evening I want to show what we can learn uh, from the warning of wicked Israel in the time of Hosea, because they are, no doubt, very wicked during this time period. And we find the Hosea, or excuse me, Israel rather, at various times throughout history is extremely wicked. When we say wicked, we mean they have gone against God. We don't mean they have just broken a command or two, they had a lapse of judgment. What we mean is they, that they completely walked away from God and they did so deliberately. It wasn't an accident, it wasn't a misunderstanding of their, of their knowledge. They completely just walked away from God. We're also going to find that their knowledge or their lack thereof is one of the reasons they're in the, the situation in which they find themselves. But we look at Hosea chapter, chapter 1, we find Hosea's marriage to Gomer and their children. We look at Hosea chapter 1, looking at verse 2, the Bible says, And the Lord began to speak by, speak by Hosea the Lord, said to Hosea, Go take take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. Now notice, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. Now this again is comparing Israel's unfaithfulness in their relationship to God. We're not talking about a literal wife of harlotry, but the idea here is showing how they were unfaithful to God. They were unfaithful to God. Israel is pictured as the wife of, of, of harlotry due to their unfaithfulness. And as we go through this, we'll see exactly what I mean by that. We find that Israel also will be punished 
while Judah was spared. The wicked are going to be punished by God. It could be during their time. It could be on the day of judgment. But rest assured, every time we read about wicked people, we also know that their time of punishment is going to come unless they repent. Looking at verse 4 of Hosea, the Bible says, And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel in the house of Jehu, and bring, on, bring it in to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Why? Because they were wicked. Bring it in is what? Well, it's a reference to punishment. Looking at verses 6 and, six and 7 says, And she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said, said to him, Call her name Loharama, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and I will not save them by bow, nor by sword, or, or battle, by horses, or horsemen. What do all those things have in common? Think about this for a moment. The bow, the sword, the battle, horses and horsemen, what does that have in common? They have nothing to do with God. If they could be saved by any of those things, and men could turn around and say, well, God didn't save us. We are saved by what? By the power of their bow, or the power of their sword, by the power of their horses, or the power of their horsemen. So God says specifically here, they're not going to be saved by any of those things. They're going to be saved by me. As we continue reading, we find uh, an image of the relationship to Gomer uh, to, to, to make the marriage symbolize the Lord's relationship to Israel, as we look at chapters 2 and 3, we find that God provides for them over and over again, and they would take advantage of His blessings from Him, and then they would turn away from Him. In Hosea chapter 2, looking at verse 8, the Bible says, For she did not know that I gave her grain. Who's the she? It was a reference to Israel. She did not know. What does that mean? Really, it's that they did not consider. Or they had forgotten, because they had put God out of their mind. Now, let's be honest, sometimes when things are going well, isn't it very easy to be tempted to think, boy, we have done well this year, instead of saying God has blessed us this year? You look at verse 8, he says, That I gave her grain, new wine, and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. How do they repay God? Well, he blessed them with all these things in verse 8. What they do? They go and give it to a worthless idol, a God that, they, that did not exist because they created it. Verse 9, Therefore I will return and take away my grain in its time, and my new wine in its season. And I will take back my wool, my linen, given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness. What does that mean? He's going to expose their tremendous wickedness in front of everybody. He's not talking about literally taking someone and making them strip down in front of people. What he's saying is their error and their sin is going to be exposed where they cannot hide it. He says in verse 10, I will uncover her lewdness, which is a reference to their sin, their wickedness, and inside of her lovers, all those who what who look to her, and no one should deliver her, now notice, from my hand, which means there is nothing they could do about it. No one could stop God from punishing them for their wickedness. We continue reading, looking at verse 10 of chapter 2. He says, I will also, excuse me, verse 11, I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, 
All her appointed feasts are what? He says, I will cause them all to end. And I will destroy her vines, her fig trees, of which she has said, These are wages that my lovers have given me. So I'll make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. They're saying, What? We have been blessed by what? By our relationship with other wicked people. Her lovers is what? Those that she's engaged with, harlotry with. I will punish her for the days of the bales to which she burned incense. She decked herself with earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but she forgot, but me she forgot, said the Lord. There's a simple phrase we could underline, but me, being God, she forgot. And so what's going to happen? God says he's going to take it all away. We continue reading. We see how Israel has shown mercy, and they're going to leave idolatry and return to God who blesses them. Looking at verse 14, going through chapter 3, verse 5, says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak comfort to her. I'll give her her vineyards from there in the valley of, in the valley of Achor as a, door, as a door of hope. What is God talking about? He's going to give them a chance to come back. He's going to give them a chance to make themselves right. He says here in verse 15, uh, She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, showing that in the past what? They have been faithful. As in the day when she came up in the land of Egypt, and it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband, and no longer call me my master. But I will take from her mouth the names of the bells, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. Referencing what? Then walking away from these false gods. In that day, verse 18, I'll make a covenant for them. With the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground, bow and sword of battle, I will shatter from the earth to make them lay down safely. What's God going to do? Because of them coming back, God's going to bless them. He says in verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. What was the condition of them being betrothed to God? Well, he uses the word over and over again. Faithfulness, righteousness. Those are their conditions of having a right relationship with God. We continue reading here in chapter, in verse 21 rather, and it shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, and with oil, they shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. In chapter 3, verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. He took to other gods and loved the raisin cakes of the pagans. So it helps us understand what God has been talking about throughout this all along. The unfaithful harlot that is Israel. We continue reading in verse 2, So I... So I bought her for myself for fifteen shekels of silver and one and one half homers of barley. And I said to her, You shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too I will be toward so too I will be toward you. 
For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacrifice pillar, without ephod or uh, terrapin. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. They're going to give up all these things, give up all these sacrifices. And in the end, they would have that right relationship with God. Before we get to that, though, we have to talk about what caused this problem in the first place. What was the cause of Israel's downfall? Well, you look at chapter 4 of Hosea, chapter 4, looking at uh, verse 6, there said, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. What was one of their downfall? They were ignorant. Remember back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, how the people said, uh, God, the people did not consider the things in which he has blessed them with. They did not consider him. Me, he says, they forgot. What does that show? Their lack of knowledge. Their lack of knowledge of God caused them to disregard God. When you don't understand who God is, and you don't have a, a good knowledge of him, you don't love him like you should because you don't have a knowledge of him, it makes it very easy to walk away. <coughs> so their lack of knowledge was one of the reasons. Their ignorance allowed them to slide away from him very easily. Was another reason for their unfaithfulness? That would be their instability. Flipping numbers around here, going to Hosea chapter 6 this time, looking at verse 4. Notice here the, the words that are used. He says, O Ephraim, what shall I do to you, O Judah? What shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, like the early dew, it goes away. What's he talking about? Their faithfulness is short. You know, you get up in the morning, you get up early enough, especially in the summertime, the dew falls, and you find that water there, what happens? Well, eventually it goes away, right? It doesn't last forever. The fog in the morning will go away. Well, that's the idea we find here in verse 4. Their faithfulness is not very long. It doesn't last but for a moment. Their desire to do what is right, you could say it was gone by the early morning. Some other reasons why they were unfaithful to God because of worldliness, backsliding, and idolatry. They had joined the sinners of the world. In chapter 7, verse 8 and 9, Ephraim has mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake unturned. Aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and there on him, yet he does not know it. What is he talking about? The world has corrupted them. He has mixed himself among the people, a reference to being mixed with those who are causing them to sin, mixed with sinners, not just being in the world, but these who are being guilty of being of the world, and which we must be careful about today as well. They are also backsliders. If you look at Hosea chapter 11, looking at verses 6 through verse 9, the Bible says, And the sword shall, shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me, though they call the Most High, none at all exalt him. That's a very big verse. He says they are what? They are bent or determined, he says, on backsliding. They're determined to walk away. He says, though they call the Most High, none at all exalt him. I picture that as a person calling out to God for help, but yet they don't give God what he deserves. A true, faithful service. 
He says in verse 8, How can I give, give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like uh, Adama? How can I set you like Zephalim? My heart turns within me. My sympathy is stirred. And I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come with terror. But what would happen if he did? Well, they would cease to exist. The only reason they had lasted this long is because God was long-suffering. God was merciful. But their problem was what? Well, they were bent, they were determined to be backsliders. They were also those who were following after false gods. Let's look at Hosea 13 and verse 2. He says, Now they sin more and more and have made themselves molded images, idols of their silver according to their skill. All of it is the work of craftsmen. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. What were they doing? They were literally creating their gods. He says, he, he says here in verse 2, I have, and have made themselves molded images, idols of their silver according to their skill. All of it is the work of craftsmen. They literally had to create their gods. One final reason we want to notice here is just general corruption. They are deeply corrupt in their ways. Looking at Hosea 9, verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 says that they are corrupt in their ways. They are deeply corrupted as in the days of Giva. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. And so what happens? They are tremendously corrupt. Looking at verse 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor and severed themselves to that chain. They became an abomination like the thing they loved. And notice how he calls the God a thing? Because that's all it was. It wasn't a God. It was an idol. As we saw back in chapter 13, or, yes, back, well, when we go to chapter 13, that these were things they created for themselves. The craftsmen made it. So what happens? Well, God refers to it as the thing that they love. Some lessons for us today. We must learn from the error or the mistakes of others. Israel was found at times to be those who forgot God easily. Now we understand and we should that we too sometimes can be guilty of the same thing. If things are going well for us, it's very tempting to think, well, it's because I've worked so hard. And no doubt that's part of it. But God has a hand in every blessing that we have. And any difficulty that has that comes our way, God will have a hand in us overcoming it too. We cannot give God the praise uh, or call upon God for in times of difficulty <clears throat> if we don't give Him the praise in times of, of a plenty in times of being prosperous. We must give God His due at all times. Israel was found at times to be those who forgot, who forgot God, as we know from Isaiah 6 and verse 4. What happens? Their faithfulness that went away like the morning dew. It was short-lived. We do not want to be like that. We don't want our faithfulness to be something that disappears in a matter of hours. We must never forget who God is and what He continually does for us. It's easy sometimes to look at Israel and say, well, how could they be that way? How could they be those same people who God led out of Egypt by His mighty hand 
and then turn around and it seems like in a short period of time start worshiping a false god. How could they do that? And yet we see it today in, in, in ourselves sometimes doing similar things. We forget how much God has blessed us and we forget who God is. And we start praising ourselves instead of praising God. We must remember God punishes workers of iniquity. There is no escape from punishment. And so for that reason, the only escape we have to realize, the only escape from punishment, rather, is by our, our obedience to God. So many times today, it's interesting we have those individuals who think there is no way they're going to be punished for their actions. And yet time and time again, we find that's not the case. We not only see it in the Bible, we also see it in secular history that many individuals are going to pay the price for their wrongs. We must be those who are not going to allow one of our wrongs to be walking away from God. We must remember God punishes workers of iniquity. Sin never goes unpunished or unnoticed by God. In Isaiah 9 and verse 9 says, He will remember their iniquity, He will punish their sins. He does not forget those who have not repented. Bearing in mind those who do repent, as David said, to cast their sins as far as the east is from the west, but the difference is it's those who repent. Only those who repent. Some have conceived them, or committed themselves, rather, that uh, they have plenty of time to change, but no one knows for sure. Every time someone tells me, well, something to this effect, well, you know, when they calm down, we're going to stop by, we're going to visit with you. I lost count how many times I've heard that. Or, well, when I'm not so busy, I'd like to sit down and talk about some of these things. What's interesting is we fail to realize that because of the world, they're going to try to convince you that you're always too busy. There's always something else that, well, you really should take care of this first. One of the greatest and saddest examples of that is Felix in Acts chapter 24. You remember, he even called for Paul. But he told, after he heard what Paul had to say, he was afraid, the Bible says. He told him to go away for now and have a convenient time, I'll call for you. He never had a convenient time. The Bible doesn't record it. I've never heard or read anything, anything else about Felix obeying the gospel. In fact, we find was he actually left Paul in prison as a favor to the Jews, which leaned toward the idea that he never obeyed the gospel. He never had that convenient time. Friends, we must realize that the day of judgment is not the convenient time. Waiting to our deathbed is not the convenient time. Waiting until we have, quote, you know, experienced things of life, I think we can agree with the writer of Ecclesiastes, those things are overrated. Trying to find happiness in the world, as he put it, was like grasping, trying to grasp the wind. You can't do it. There's plenty of wind up here in Oklahoma. I've never seen one grab and hold on to it. Happiness in the world and trying to find contentment in a sinful life is not possible. If it was so, Solomon, who tells us there at the beginning of Ecclesiastes that whatever he eyes, his eyes wanted, he had, and yet when we get to the end of his writings there in Ecclesiastes, he tells us what? So let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. I mean, what does all this mean? Fear God and keep his commandments. He could do whatever he wanted. He said, none of it brings happiness. The partying, the knowledge, so-called, the 
whatever he wanted. A big house, the Bible tells us he could have whatever he wanted. And he said in the end that none of it brought happiness. You know, David was one who had a lot of blessings. He was a tremendous man of God. But he also tells us numerous times in the Psalms that without God there was no happiness. That he had constant problems. And the constant and consistent answer for David was God. And we can learn from him. We can learn also from those during the time of Hosea. As we find here, what was their problem? They thought they didn't need God. It's kind of like people today say, well, I don't need this grocery store until the grocery store runs out of something or until they sh shut down and say, boy, that really was nice. I didn't really think about that. Some people view God that way. I don't need God until something happens. And so many people all of a sudden find religion. Do you remember back when 9-11 happened? You probably heard me talk about this before. All those horrible things and various acts of violence took place. And you actually saw, I remember seeing it, people on national television calling on citizens to pray. They had all kinds of little concerts and benefits on television. You could even see, for it's a short period of time, prayer on public television. But when things started to clear up and things in the mind of some people started to calm down, you started hearing people say, well, we shouldn't do that on national television. We shouldn't ask for prayer on television. What do they do? They began to push God aside. But when things went south, let's call upon God. God is not a panic button. He is the one whom we follow and hold to each and every day. It's not when just when things are going bad that we call upon Him. We hold on to Him during the sunshine and during the rain. If we want to be better, we must learn from other mistakes, other people's mistakes, and from our own as well. We have to learn from our mistakes, which is not easy. I mean, it's a lot easier said than done, right? Learn from your own mistakes. Okay, got it. Now put it into action. Well, I messed up yesterday. What am I going to do today? Try not to do that same thing. It's a lot easier said than done. We must learn from our own mistakes and from the mistakes of others. When we learn from mistakes, we will be better tomorrow. But we want to be better tomorrow. When I talk about being better tomorrow, I'm talking about we want to be a stronger Christian tomorrow. And be better each and every day. We have to start today. You won't be better tomorrow if you start tomorrow. You know why? Because then it'll be today. If we want to prepare for the future, we want to be a better, stronger Christian. I say better sometimes, people say, well, that's kind of generic. What do we mean by that? I mean stronger in faith, stronger in our knowledge of God, not fearful of the future, knowing who holds tomorrow, as the Apostle Paul said. But we have to start today. Because, friends, there's one thing that has been, really should be put in our mind over the last year and a half is that we have no idea what's coming tomorrow. The virus of 2020, how many of us expected that? <clears throat> the cold freeze we just had, I'll be honest, I don't really check the weather that much. It caught me off guard. But what other things pop up that we are not expecting? Sudden illness, sudden job loss, sudden damages to property at home, 
See, we have to realize that we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, James reminds us of that, doesn't he? He tells us that life is but a vapor. It appears for a little while to vanish away, which means that we don't know if we're going to actually be here tomorrow. So don't we need to prepare ourselves right now? This evening, as you think about these things, we can help you, we can encourage you. You're ready to do what is necessary to obey the gospel so that you can't have heaven as your home. Don't wait till tomorrow. Prepare today. We can help you. We'd be glad to assist you. It's going to be standing to sing the song that's been selected. One step at a time, dear